Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're lucky enough to have Brad Kerner on the podcast. Brad has a lifetime of experience in the lighting industry. With over 20 years at a variety of positions, he currently lives in Amsterdam and is working for SEMA to develop new lighting solutions that revolve around luminous surfaces and push the boundaries of what we can do with light as an architectural element. How's it going, Brad? It's uh, about six o'clock in the evening over there in Amsterdam. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sam, things are going great here. It's always sunny in Amsterdam. Uh, It is six o'clock. As you say, it's five o'clock somewhere. I always have fun with that when I'm working with my US-based colleagues. How are you? How's Colorado? It's good. Uh, sun is shining. Unlike Amsterdam, it is always sunny in Colorado, Brad. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I know that there's this other town, Philadelphia. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, too. And that's actually where the company you work for, SEMA, is based out of. But you're overseas. Tell me a little bit about your journey to get to Amsterdam and what you're doing over there and what's on your mind today. Well, so I have a 20-year career in lighting. I spent a lot of time as a lighting designer in Boston. I worked for Ritman Lighting, Light This with Dyna Yorkis, and then later on with uh, Lamb Partners. Two years in Boise, Idaho, working for Micron. I moved to Amsterdam when I was recruited by the chief design officer of Philips Lighting at the time, Rohir Vanderheide, who's a pretty famous lighting designer himself. I worked with him in his iconic projects team. We worked on projects like the Rijksmuseum here in Amsterdam, which is one of the most beautiful museums in the world. And then eventually I started a corporate venture called uh, Luminous Patterns. Did that for about three years and wound up working for one year in a 3D printing corporate venture. Eventually wound up at SEMA when a former colleague of mine, Brandon Simeon, who I'd worked with at Color Kinetics, decided to join as VP of sales there. Turned out we really uh, kicked it off just fine. They love the luminous patterns and embedded lighting story that I've been working on for years. I wanted to bring me into the company to start uh, developing that as a product line for them. I think that's super cool. Obviously, you have always pushed the limits of of probably what's possible and and being an innovator and thinking outside of the box when it comes to lighting and architectural lighting. You're working on creating a almost a new division, a new concept within a company that has a storied history, not so much in lighting. Talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to dive into luminous surfaces. For, for me, it goes way back. I'm an architect by training. I went to the University of Virginia for a four-year degree. And while I was at the School of Architecture, the drama department was right next door. And I wound up taking a lighting design course in the theater department as a extracurricular course. And uh, Lee Kennedy was the professor of lighting there. And he just was one of my most favorite teachers I ever had. He started it off the first day of class was in a black box theater. He put an Edison bulb in the middle of the room, totally blacked out everything. And I had that bulb on like a five second fade, or no, sorry, five minute fade. And uh, he asked us to describe what we saw. That's so, so cool. What an experience. And it just got better from there. He was just a, a wonderful teacher. Uh, he's still there, did uh, awesome things with high-end systems, cyber lights and scanning mirror fixtures, and had some of the earliest internet-connected lighting I've ever seen. He had a Horizons console that had an HTML page connection to it. You could click on the icons and drive 
your lighting with that on the stage. And this was around 1995, 1996. Computers were barely in color in 95 and 96. That's some pretty advanced technology for the time. It was, and he was really very innovative. And uh, this was about, you know, 97 was when Color Kinetics was first uh, launched. And I remember sitting in his office, um, he showed me lighting dimensions, the magazine, and he pointed it off this little C75 fixture from Color Kinetics. And he says, someday that's, that's the future. He's like, color changing, no moving parts, DMX control. He's like, that's gonna be very big. So he, he saw it right away. And the moment they launched that product, he could envision all the uses for that. After University of Virginia, I went on to Harvard for a master's in architecture. I had a wonderful experience. I got very lucky and I interned at Ritman Lighting Associates with Chris Ritman and Adam Kibbe, Abe and Charlie and those guys, and uh, worked there for three years uh, while I was getting my master's. And that was just one of the richest experiences. They had a, a basement filled with every light bulb and mock-up fixture and just, you know, bins of extension cords. And that was my first summer, was down in the basement organizing that. And then also at the Museum of Fine Arts doing uh, fiber optics for the ancient Near East and uh, uh, Assyrian galleries. I really started to look at this convergence of lighting as a material, right? So you have to remember this was 1998, 1999. Blue LEDs were only a few years old. Sort of these, this notion of jumbotrons was also only a, f- a few years old. But I went to a few things that really changed my view on the world. So I went to LDI, the lighting convention, and I saw a very early LED screen that was very crude. It was built on index-sized card PCBs with five millimeter LEDs, but the whole thing had this kind of wire structure behind it and it could roll up. Like, like roll up like a piece of paper, right? Like a piece of, well, more like a big garage door, like an overhead garage door. It's a, think of like something that big, right? It was huge. It was like 10 feet wide and 15 feet long. And I don't remember the manufacturer anymore. But the moment I saw that, I'm like, well, all that technology is going to be miniaturized. And then someday you're going to see lighting as a material, right? And this was around, I think, 1998, 1997, maybe one of those I mean, editions. Over 20 years ago. Yeah. When I went up to Boston to the GSD, uh, I introduced myself to Kevin Dowling, who was at uh, Color Kinetics at the time. I eventually did my thesis as interactive control for retail lighting. You see where LEDs are going, the earliest OLED, and, and we were looking at ways to integrate lighting into materials like glowing concrete, you know, glowing wood, uh, glowing glass. That was so much fun. You know, I think what's cool is over 20 years ago, you and and some of your colleagues and and comrades that were students were really forward thinking. And you were looking at LED as not only a a future light source, but a way that it might change the lighting form factor. Let's jump into almost present day. Where are luminous surfaces making sense in the architectural environment space? Well, luminous surfaces are timeless, but their day is still yet to come. I like to ground my discussions when we talk about luminous surfaces by first referencing back to Richard Kelly, uh, the famous New York-based lighting designer in the 1950s and 60s who worked with Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson and Edison Price. You know, he had his ambient luminescence play a brilliance and focal glow and, you know, he 
he executed that so beautifully. I mean, he had glowing ceilings across the Seagram's building office spaces, right, filled with fluorescent lights, and that was 1961, I think, 60, 1960, something like that. That was almost a beacon of light at nighttime, right? I mean, it was. It, this beautiful rectangle stood prominently, and from the exterior, you could look at it and say, that's the Seagram's building. And it wasn't known for anything else than the fact that it glowed like a lantern. And that was this very conscious, the design choice, even the travertine marble down in the lobby, you know, it's three stories of marble walls. They worked on developing these very unique hidden light grazers, you know, and back then they're, you're talking like, you know, 250 watt, 500 watt, a lamp style bulbs that you had to create reflectors around to achieve that. You know, he lit that marble beautifully, but the, the goal was from the street that the lobby became a lantern. So these notions have been around forever and a lot of high-end projects have used backlit uh, stone, they've used coves, you know, they've used custom signage pieces. You know, you think about what focus lighting does, you think about casinos, you think about restaurants that have $5 million budgets and so on. They've, they've been trying this for decades and decades to do this. Um, you know, LEDs though, came in and they dematerialized lighting. So all the old light bulbs and sockets, they're irrelevant now. And LEDs, because they're so small, I mean, nowadays you can get chip scale packages that are literally half a millimeter square and smaller, right? You're talking smaller than grains of sand now for LED chip sizes. And just so we're clear, those half millimeter LED packages, the light output's actually going up, right? The size yes. is going down, the light output is going up because the LED manufacturing process has become so efficient. People are looking at every way to innovate it from size to output. Yes. I mean, you have commercial fixtures on the market now that are easily outputting 150 lumens per watt. What's happening now is that you've had, you know, a decade or more than a decade, 15 years of people looking at LED products as a thermal challenge. And everything had to be these big heat sinks and elaborate thermal gap pads between the printed circuit boards to the heat sinks and everything had to be screwed down tight and so on and so forth. Well, now the efficacies are so high that you can eliminate a lot of that thermal heat sinking, right? So you can make much simpler products. You don't have to do that. You're using very low wattages, very high efficacies. The LEDs are bulletproof. I mean, the LEDs are probably the last thing in a lighting system that will ever fail. It's always gonna be the driver the power supplies, particularly the electrolytic capacitors and the drivers that are the failure points. So this means now you can legitimately embed lights into wall surfaces. And as long as you're smart about panelizing it, I mean, I'm talking about embedding lighting into concrete that if it fails, you have to chisel it out, which actually happened to us at Color Kinetics. If you're smart about just basic maintenance and being able to repair something, you will never have to relamp these things again. They're gonna last easily 150,000, 200,000 hours for the LED side of it. The drivers can be easily remoted. They can be up in the ceiling. They can be wherever you want. Driver technology is getting better. It's getting smaller. The overall currents are all dropping, so they're going to last longer. So now you can start to embed lighting into the wall surfaces, the ceiling surfaces that surround us. So instead of thinking of it as a, a two by two troffer or a downlight that you're, you know, downlight, I hate downlights because you're trying to hide the light source, right? You're trying to like pretend that it's not there but yet you always have a hole in the ceiling. Why not come up with a better way? You know, can't, can't you illuminate that room without trying to hide the lighting? 
can't you make the lighting you know, something? Can it be ambient luminescence? Can it be f a play of brilliance? I mean, what you could use some innovation here to make the experience in these spaces so much more richer. So I really don't like um, modern office lighting where you're trying to basically pretend that the lights are hiding and you're trying to do so much glare control that there's no brilliance in the space. Because there's a theory behind lighting the space. The more surface area that you have to push the light through or take the light and, and project it across a space, the less bright it has to be, right? If you have a two inch aperture and you have to put a thousand lumens out of two inches versus a two foot by two foot area to put a thousand, a thousand lumens out, you can diffuse it. It can be something that's more comfortable and that's what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're looking at literally taking that surface and saying, let's just cast the light into the space. What's working right now in, in the early stages of commercializing these products? Where have you seen success? So, you know, when we can fuse LED lighting in any wall surface, suddenly you have whole new options that designers can do, right? Instead of having a, a commercial ceiling with four two by two troffers, you could put 300 little points of light up in there in a beautiful abstract pattern that looks vaguely like leaves. We have digital control on everything. So you could add subtle animation to that, right? So suddenly you're not lighting a space trying to hide the light fixtures. You're lighting the space trying to celebrate light. It's like sitting under a tree on a beautiful sunny day where you have a, a breezy day, you get dappled light flowing through. Everybody loves that, right? Laying in a hammock under the trees. No one says, oh, that light is distracting. Oh, that light is, you know, hard on my eyes, right? So why isn't that good for us to put in offices or our interiors? You know, we're talking about circadian rhythms and daylighting, and that requires much higher brightness levels, right? So we have to have glowing surfaces in modern spaces. If you think about natural rhythm, we want to have a lot of luminous surfaces at very high color temperatures, very high brightnesses, right? At night, we're used to the opposite. We're used to firelight, right? So we want very warm lighting, very low to the ground. This is why restaurants have candles. This is why, you know, cove lighting uh, along the edges of floors looks so beautiful. How can you invigorate these spaces with visual richness. The modernism movement in the 60s stripped away ornamentation, right? The quote unquote garish ornamentation. And a lot of that was the brass and glass chandeliers and the wallpaper and, and all that rich. They used beautiful woods, beautiful brass, metals, marble, but we don't have budgets to do that nowadays. So now we get these worlds of wall to wall carpet and gypsum wallboard. So can't we use lighting to sort of reinvigorate these spaces to add that play of brilliance back in that was so crucial to Richard Kelly's sort of fundamental understanding, right? You have ambient luminescence, which is what we do with uplighting the ceilings and cove lighting. We have uh, focal glow, which is decorative pendants, track lighting on objects, highlighting the art, but we need that play of brilliance. The human eye needs relief. We create these spaces that are completely uniform throughout the day. They never change. The air conditioning doesn't change. The lighting doesn't change. Um, and it just smothers your sense of life, right? You just don't want to be in these spaces. You fall asleep by three o'clock. And it's not just blue light, right? It's the design of the whole space. So this is why I'm so fascinated by how do we empower lighting designers? How do we empower architects and interior designers to use these really fun, innovative concepts of embedded lighting 
in easier, project-friendly ways. And that's what I've been focused on both at Philips, and that's what now I'm focused on again at SEMA. Well, I tell you what, Brad, I think it's awesome that you are helping this industry evolve and also empowering those designers to think outside of the box and create new opportunities in design. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into the technology, where it is and where it's going. Great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Be sure to check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back to the Light Pod. Brad and I were just catching up a little bit more over the break about the potential for luminous surfaces and what it means to embed light in something that maybe hasn't had it embedded in before. Brad, talk to me just a little bit more about where we are at today with luminous surface technology and how it might be able to influence and change the way people think about doing design. Well, we we have the lighting technology and we have the digital control technologies. Um, And from the construction side of it, we have things like BIM, we have parametric design, we have digital fabrication, things like, you know, CNC router tables, CNC laser cutting. We just haven't tied it all together yet. So we don't have a lot of commercial projects at any sort of volume. I mean, you always have the leaders like Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid that can do amazing, wondrous things, but that hasn't scaled yet. Even when you see the leaders like UN Studio, if you look at what their competition entry, the beautiful renderings are, right? They'll show these amazing, you know, fields of embedded lighting up in the ceilings and, you know, all this geometric parametric variation throughout. Then you actually look at what they build and almost all of that's VE'd off the job and it's replaced by, you know, hidden track fixtures trying to hide up in coves and stuff like that. What I'm very fascinated about is how lighting designers will embrace and their partners, their architects, their interior designers will embrace new technologies. At the venture that I was leading at Philips, we had done some very cool things. I hired some interns from TU Delft School of Architecture and Industrial Design. And those kids coming out of school are fluent in using Rhino and Grasshopper uh, to create parametric variation, right? So they're using algorithms to drive design. What we need are such a drastically different range of skills. Right, it's it's not enough to be able to draw a section. You can't draw a section through a Zaha Hadid building. You need to model it using algorithms. You need to produce it digitally. You know, you, you don't go through a paper process. You keep it all digital. You design it as a digital model. It goes off to the contractors and the fabricators as a digital model, and it's and it's managed on site using digital tools and techniques. That's a revolution that the lighting industry has just simply not embraced yet. And why do you think the lighting industry has had a hard time embracing the revolution of digital technology in terms of design? Well, it's not just lighting. It's it's the construction industry in general, right? BIM has been promised for a decade now, and it's been very slow to uh, be embraced. You know, the construction industry embraces innovation at a glacial pace. Productivity, I believe, in construction has actually gone down, where in every other industry, uh, globally, it's gone up. Lighting might actually have an opportunity to lead that change of integrated and digital design, given not only the technology that we're using, 
but like you said, the software programs and the, the minds behind the people that control that today. So there's a lot of trends in construction to use digital fabrication and to use these digital models to prefabricate things off-site and bring that to a construction site, right? So for, for example, at SEMA, we have this idea just to make a prefabricated cove. I mean, how hard are coves to detail using traditional construction? You think about this, typically an architect will employ a lighting designer. They'll sketch out some cove section that has to then go into the construction documents package that then has to get bid. People don't know what it is. There's some weird LED finicky lighting up in it on the construction site that has to get framed out and steel you know steel studs then you have to go you do the rough sheetrock then you have to bring an electrician in to uh, rough wire it then you have to go in and plaster it then you have to bring the electrician a second time to put the finicky weird led lighting up in there that's above their heads reaching around on the top of a ladder and you wonder why a lot of projects don't use cove lighting right and i'm saying to myself you know let's just prefabricate it we're just going to deliver a thin well-integrated designed cove that you bring onto a construction site, you screw to the ceiling, connect to the electricity, and you're done. And it's gonna save a massive amount of coordination and project management costs. So these are sorts of opportunities that I'm looking at. So, you know, embedded lighting, um, we're looking at putting patterns of light in wall panels that are fabricated at our factory. So if you think about a typical light box on a construction site, right? How again, how hard has that been to coordinate? In the old days, you would use fluorescent tubes, you could use neon, you could use cold cathode. You know, typically you need a one-to-one -one spacing ratio between a light source and the diffusion uh, medium in front, right? Well, if you're doing uh, fluorescent strips that are six inches apart, that means you need like, you know, a good foot or something out. That's a huge volume of space that you're losing uh, in very expensive real estate. Now with LEDs, you can minimize that to be a quarter of an inch to get a uniform surface. So we can look, treat that now as like a layer, almost like a ply in plywood. And then you can face that with whatever decorative piece you want on top of it, such as a laser cut or CNC router cut decorative front face. And when you take that quarter inch thickness of essentially an LED sheet, it's almost back to that story, the garage door that you saw at the trade show over 20 years ago but now you can walk onto a job site with it underneath your arm, so to speak, and, and roll that thing onto a surface. What's going on with technology right now that's allowing this to happen, and where do you see it in the next two, five, and 10 years? Yes, you can roll light up right now into a roll, right? Whether it's LED or OLED or uh, LEDs based on e-tech styles. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can you can do that. The problem is, is when you try to use it in architectural construction, what do you do with it, right? It's, it's great that we got as far now as being able to have light as a flexible, you know, completely moldable, formable material. But just like a fabric, you still need to panelize it or mold it or cut it or, you know, fit it to the architecture. It has to have structure. It has to be a panel or it has to be a surface or it has to be an object. Uh, so you've seen a few very good companies like Cool Edge is a great example, right, that came up with uh, flexible sheets with LED lights on it quite a few years ago. But then they kind of got stuck thinking that they could sell that to architecture. And that's like selling a, a, a triple two compact fluorescent bulb to an architect, like they don't know what to do with it. They need it in a fixture that can be put into architecture. So you've seen Cool Edge now has launched like complete fixtures, but they're big luminous surfaces. 
what's next for lighting designers? And Brad, what are people like you and companies like SEMA doing to create the opportunity to innovate beyond the traditional boundaries of design? Yeah, we're trying to make it easier to integrate more innovative lighting solutions into architectural projects, right? So we're trying to take the hidden costs of embedded lighting features out of the projects at all all the levels, from design through the bidding and supply and through the actual site installation process. So we're using a lot of prefabricated strategies so that lighting designers can go and do configuration tools online to develop these complicated pieces and we simplify it. So let's say you want a wall with 300 points of light. We'll make it very easy. We'll make the tools very easy to integrate that into BIM, to integrate that into your calculations, your visualizations. And then in our factory, we prefab everything. So we'll prefab all the panels. So when we get to the construction site, you're just hanging the wall panels and you're clicking them into the power supply and you're done. You're not trying to coordinate three different trades and an ugly bidding process and value engineering. You have a very tight cost control. You have a very tight project control and you can get your vision realized the way you wanted it done. I think you hit the nail on the head there and it's been something that's been on my mind since we started this conversation today. Uh, everybody knows you can get six downlights and it's a good price. You also get a certain a lit rendered environment out of that. I'm sure when you think about illuminating an entire wall, uh, having prefab panels, uh, the dollar signs start to cha-ching in your eyes. But obviously this is a technology that not only is there and is available and has the opportunity to be produced. I've got to assume that there's a lot of cost benefit to do this. Talk to me about what this stuff costs and, and what the benefit of having it all integrated and prefabbed and how it controls and mitigates the VE process. Yeah, so with some of the projects I've done previously, we can do an entire luminous wall or a luminous ceiling with hundreds of points of light, all digitally controlled for not much more than your classic, you know, Louis Paulson artichoke pendant. So the, the cost is all relative, right? And you think about high-end hospitality projects and beautiful corporate lobbies, right? You have architects and interior designers using art glass or fine wood panels or stone panels. And that stuff is like two, three, four hundred dollars a square foot and it doesn't even light up yeah and the and the led technology and making a box of you know hundreds of points of light or panels right is not expensive in a factory it's not expensive when you've set up a product system in advance that you know what your options are that you have the mass customization tools the digital tools already set up all of those coordination costs that are so killer on construction projects, they just go away. You don't have those, right? It's basically a single line item spec to deliver an entire wall surface with a complete digital control system. And the only labor you need is, you know, uh, not even a union electrician. You just need uh, a person to hang the panels on the wall because we can now use low voltage power to uh, connect it all. We've seen prefabbed hotel rooms. We've seen prefab uh, homes that can be built out of containers and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, China was building hospitals in like 60 days recently. What's next for you, Brad? You've got this concept. Uh, you're working through Luminous Services. I know we could talk for hours and hours more about lighting and data and everything else. What's on the horizon for you? 
SEMA is an interesting company because it's a signage company, right? So you're wondering why Brandon, Simeon, and I joined SEMA rather than a traditional architectural lighting company. You know, SEMA does everything custom to begin with. So they have a factory floor that's used to mass customization fundamentally. You know, I love looking at the convergence of multiple things, right? So I love looking at architecture, design, digital trends, and I synthesize all these things together because I want to see what the future is, right? I look at trade shows like Integrated Systems Europe, which is all digital signage, and I look at these amazing LED screens, and I look at these, you know, camera-based vision systems, and I look at all that technology, and then I go to the Salone show in Milan, and I look at the state-of-the-art in furniture and interiors and fabrics, and I look at um, shows like factory shows where there's robotics, and automation, and I love synthesizing all of this, right? I just feed on all of this. I try to take a very broad view because that's where it's going. I mean, one of the coolest things I've come across in the past few years is a game engine, which is so powerful for visualization that it just fundamentally changes the way designers work and think. So all of the coolest innovation is coming from outside of the lighting industry. So if you want to innovate the lighting industry, you have to take a very broad view on the world and uh, embrace all of these changes across multiple industries. I went down to Paris a couple years ago to check out Frank Gehry's Louis Vuitton Foundation. Just a magnificent building, unbelievable construction. But the lighting looked like something Lightelier could have done in the 1960s. You know, big, ugly spotlights stuck all over the sails. Gehry's using aerospace-derived CATIA software to realize these amazing projects, but the lighting industry has nothing to respond to it. Think of how amazing embedded lighting solutions would be in the hands of a Gehry or Zaha Hadid. My personal ambition is to set up a world-class product development group that leads the industry. And I'm certainly not going to get there doing the same tired old things everyone else in the industry does. You know, there's something to be said about getting out of your own sandbox and going to the one next door and bringing back your friends, some new cool toys to play with, and having an opportunity to innovate and push the limits of an industry that's been around for a long time, that's had a great opportunity to do some amazing things. And there's obviously still a lot yet to come. Brad, this has been a really fun conversation. I know we could talk for hours and hours more about lighting. Uh, you're super passionate about innovating, thinking outside of the box and really looking into the future. Where can people get in touch with you? How can they reach out if they have additional questions? They can contact me at SEMA at bkerner at SEMA network.com. Uh, I have a blog at lucep.com and you can find me on LinkedIn. And Brad, just do me a favor. That's a fantastic last name, but you got to spell it for me. Brad Kerner, K-O-E-R-N-E-R. Ladies and gentlemen, Brad Kerner. Brad, thanks so much for your time and your conversation. I know it's, uh, it's almost eight o'clock now, so you got to get home. You got to get to dinner, but thanks for joining us for a remote podcast. We'll catch up with you again soon. See ya. Thanks, Sam. Hey, it's Sam. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Light Pod. If you liked it, the best way to make sure you never miss another episode is to go back to the app that you were listening in and click follow or subscribe. Be sure to never miss another episode on The Light Pod, where we interview innovators, creatives, designers, and people that are just passionate about light. Until then, see you soon.